Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy Magazine. You're listening to Global Reboot, a podcast in partnership with the Doha Forum, where we examine one big problem every week and we look at ways to solve it. It's our final episode this season. So far, we've explored how to reboot democracy, how to fix the food crisis, and how to raise funds for climate change, among many other topics. Underpinning all of these, in a sense, is the question of America's role in the world, how the world's biggest economy positions itself. And that's our focus this week. Over the last few years, there's been a movement to curb America's involvement in the so-called forever wars. The proponents of that intellectual movement, they're called realists, advocate the practice of restraint, not isolationism, but restraint in how America engages in conflicts abroad. FP, of course, publishes several writers who argue for restraint, Emma Ashford, Stephen Walt, and many others. We also publish the other side, the side that argues for primacy and a more muscular, proactive American foreign policy. But it's worth considering, especially a year after America withdrew from Afghanistan, whether the Biden administration indeed practices restraint or primacy or if there's another animating force behind its policy, especially as it works to arm Ukraine against Russia and also to better compete against China. Behind the question of whether America should practice restraint or focus on primacy are several broader trends to consider. How has the world changed since the Cold War? Is America still the world's hegemon? How has China's rise changed the global order? Joining me today to think through all of this is someone who spends a lot of time thinking through these very issues. Stephen Wertheim is a senior fellow in the American Statecraft Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Previously, he was a co-founder at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, a think tank that makes the case for restraint. Wertheim is also the author of Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy, a terrific book on the history of the discussion we're just about to have. As always, if you like what you're hearing, feel free to rate us or leave comments. For now, here's the interview. Stephen, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. You too. So I want to get into the topic of Forever Was, as well as the wider merits of restraint versus primacy. And before we even get to the present moment, let's just spend a beat on history, because you wrote in your book, Tomorrow the World, that restraint in the United States has often been mischaracterized as isolationism. Explain that difference a bit. Well, when I was laboring away as a graduate student, I first wrote some articles on World War I and on the U.S. debate over the League of Nations. And I noticed that despite the received wisdom, that the basic story was a story between Woodrow Wilson advocating his League of Nations Mm -hmm. and isolationists who were opposed to it, None of the actors at the time were using this vocabulary of isolationism. In fact, advocates of the League of Nations weren't even calling their opponents isolationists. Hmm. And what I found was it was only in the 1930s, and especially during World War II itself, that the term isolationist, isolationism becomes a common coinage in American politics. Uh, So, in effect, by as early as 1941, the choice for the United States in the world came to be represented as either global dominance or total isolationism. 
I think the other really interesting aspect about this concept of isolationism uh, is that it's mostly applied to people who are objecting to the use of force or to commitments to use force, mm -hmm. but it implies that without force, no other kind of engagement in the world is possible. Uh, without that commitment, there can't really be trade. But you need boots on the ground. Exactly. Uh, so it's a kind of inherently militarized concept. And so we have these sort of very polarized perspectives, uh, as you were saying then. So isolationism or expansionism or you know, military involvement. What is a better sort of set of terms to use that is a little bit closer to the center? <laughs> well, if we want to talk about polarities, I do think the primacy versus restraint polarity is meaningful. Now, there's a lot of options in the middle of primacy and restraint, but at least there we know we're talking about U.S. political military commitments and presence. And then I think we have a more variegated set of choices. But if you look at our politics, we have to engage in this discussion in a more complex way. I mean, Donald Trump was called an isolationist for a good part of his presidency, and yet was pretty hawkish toward China from the start. So we actually mislead ourselves if we try to adopt this simplistic vocabulary to describe the actual people behind American foreign policy. How would you characterize the Biden administration's foreign policy? Well, I'd say that there has been um, at least two competing impulses in the administration's foreign policy. You remember when it came into office, it proclaimed America is back, which tried to herald the return of a more traditional U.S. foreign policy prior to the Trump years. And, you know, to my ears, this sounded like the return of American global primacy of something like the form that we've seen since at least the end of the Cold War. But then it did something somewhat surprising. It withdrew from Afghanistan. The administration even pursued what it called a, a stable and predictable relationship with Russia, which is now hard to even remember, trying to effectuate a kind of pivot to Asia that had been long talked about, but uh, not quite achieved. Mm -hmm. But I think since then, its plans have gone awry. I think what we're seeing now is a picture of you know, a very similar foreign policy to what the United States had under Trump as well as prior to Trump, but now uh, updated for increasing great power tensions, mm. uh, which uh, I think puts the United States in a really difficult spot going forward. And is it fair to say, Stephen, that there are also sort of contradictions within this foreign policy? I mean, as you pointed out, when Biden first came to power, he did say America is back. He also said America would align democracies against autocracies, also said that his administration would focus on a foreign policy for the middle class. However, when you focus on the middle class and you also say that you want to center human rights, there's a contradiction there. And that's how you end up you know, being photographed, uh, fist bumping the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, frankly, this administration has, I think, had a rather odd practice of putting forward almost every nice sounding frame for American foreign policy and pretending as though they're not in contradiction. Even with the Afghanistan withdrawal, the president affirmed that 
human rights must be at the center of U.S. foreign policy. That's right. Right. In a very speech where he's arguing that the only reasons really to go to war are in defense of clear American interests, American security and, and prosperity. I think it does reflect some real divides within the administration, right? I'm not saying that anything's in bad faith per se, but it's strangely averse to making very clear what the true basis of its policies is. Yeah. And, you know, staying with the uh, the topic of rhetoric and also clarity, I was struck by a piece you wrote over the summer where you basically said it's counterproductive to frame the war in Ukraine as a grand battle between democracy and autocracy. And instead, you pointed out we should think of it more in terms of sovereignty. Just explain that a little bit for our viewers. Well, in the first Gulf War, the George H.W. Bush administration was able to assemble a wide international coalition in defense of the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Kuwait by appealing to something that all countries have in common, which is their interest in preserving sovereignty. So I think we've seen that there is a widespread recognition that Russia's aggression in Ukraine does violate those fundamental rules of the game. So the potential to assemble a very broad coalition was there. And you know, you might look at the coalition that we have that's imposed these almost unprecedented sanctions against Russia mm. and you know, credit the Biden administration for the coalition they were able to assemble. But on the other hand, you could ask, why isn't that coalition larger? Um, why right. is it- and, it, and it excludes much of the global south. If you add up the populations of India, Indonesia, Nigeria, all the other countries that didn't support the, the sanctions, you're looking at more than half of the population of the world. Exactly. So we're looking at a coalition that takes us right back to the Cold War. In diplomacy, we should be thinking about the best reasons to give uh, that would be mm. most attractive to partners that we'd like to attract. And to my mind, the better message than the one that the administration has often led with, which has been about this struggle between democracy and autocracy around the world, is the defense of Ukraine's sovereignty and the defense of the fundamental rules of international politics and the UN Charter. And if nothing else would make it harder, more uncomfortable for Chinese diplomats and Russian diplomats to try to explain why their longstanding affirmations of those principles are now being thrown out the window. But I think when a lot of countries hear that what's at stake in the war in Ukraine for the United States and the West is a defense of democracy against autocracy, they hear that they are being asked to join a kind of endless struggle because mm. autocracy isn't going to go away in Russia, I'm afraid, anytime soon. And many countries around the world are not democracies. And for that matter, Ukraine was widely recognized to be, if it was a democracy, a deeply flawed one prior to the invasion. And the fact that the West now often holds up Ukraine as a kind of exemplary democracy that's defending the entire democratic world, despite its deep problems with corruption and so forth, smacks of hypocrisy. And I think it causes a lot of people in the global South to ask, you know, if I were in similar circumstances to Ukraine, would I get the same kind of benefit of the doubt 
from the United States and from the West, if I'm not located in Europe, have a population that's not white, mm. uh, and so forth. Yeah, indeed. And since you're sort of solidly in in the restraint camp, uh, Stephen, let me just push you a little bit on that. So what does that then mean if you're in the restraint camp in terms of America's role in the world? So what is your comeback when people make the case that the world needs America to be sort of a policeman of sorts as a moral authority? as a country that does center human rights uh, in its engagement with the world and that inspires other countries in that way. What is the the restrainer's perspective uh, or pushback on that? Well, part of me wants to say I agree with a lot of that. I just don't think that the pursuit of primacy of military dominance actually has turned the United States into the envy of the world, inspiring people or has been good for human rights. If you look at the kind of security partnerships the United States has in the Middle East and elsewhere, and that we should be, from an ethical point of view, we should be a little more concerned about our sins of commission than we are, and a little less concerned about the sins of omission that Mm. seem to exercise our political class so much as if, well, if only the United States had acted with force here and there, we might have solved this problem. If you take the war in Afghanistan as an example, it was said to be a kind of stable, low-cost equilibrium, even though uh, casualties, deaths among Afghans were actually rising in the later years of the war, as the U.S. and the uh, Afghan government were relying on airstrikes. So She's saying boots on the ground can be very counterproductive. Very counterproductive. And we have this kind of warped moral calculus that makes it seem like a scandal when we remove U.S. power from a situation where we're actively doing harm and we show that we're not concerned about the actual harms that we're committing directly. Are there any examples of, of boots on the ground over the last couple of decades that you think fitted the prism of what you think America should be doing and how it should project its role in the world? So I think the main difference between primacy and restraint actually doesn't come down to the question of military intervention, but comes down to strategy. It comes Mm -hmm. down to where are we committed? I think, as I said before, in the Gulf War, you know, I don't know that it was uh, a strictly necessary war, but I think, you know, had the United States and its coalition stopped at repelling the Iraqi Mm -hmm. invasion of Kuwait, not left large numbers of troops in the region, which got us into trouble later, but actually focused on that core goal. I think that would be a worthwhile military action. I think the defense of Bosnia, which was quite different from subsequent humanitarian interventions, including in Kosovo, because the United States and Europe could act in defense of an existing internationally recognized state. And so the post-conflict question was a lot easier, though it was not, in fact, easy. And it also didn't involve the kinds of difficult compromises or violations of international law that, for example, the intervention in Kosovo did. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, I'm open-minded even on the question of humanitarian intervention, though I don't think humanitarian intervention should define what the U.S. role in the world is. Mm -hmm. uh, Because in practice, the kinds of circumstances that can lead to a military intervention with a positive outcome seem to be very few and and far between. 
So, you know, Stephen, we've obviously, it's really helpful to define the terms we're using, the range of them from isolationism to the other extreme, uh, also restraint and primacy. But I'm going to drop the terms now for a second, because I, I also don't want to sort of straightjacket you into playing a role. And this is steering us towards the reboot part of this conversation. What should America's role be in Ukraine, for example? Do you think Washington now is doing too much? Can it keep doing what it's doing? I'm concerned where Washington's role in the war is heading. I do think that uh, the United States uh, should have imposed sanctions to punish Russia for the war. Uh, as I said, should have uh, thoroughly denounced the war and rallied as wide a coalition as possible. I think the sanctions, though, were kind of an overkill. It was just very hard to see the theory that said that sanctions were more likely to have a positive effect on Russian behavior in the short term and even in the long term. I mean, it will make Russia more dependent on China and further the division of the world into blocks. That's not really a desirable outcome either. So I understand the political impulse, mm. but I do worry that we've gotten ourselves into this escalatory dynamic that ultimately isn't necessarily going to have good results in Ukraine or in the long term. If you were to recommend a tweak in the current sort of Washington policy uh, in terms of the war, what would that be? Well, I think it seems quite evident that the administration has not had many diplomatic contacts with Moscow. Mm -hmm. It's harder to know what the administration is saying to Zelensky and the Ukrainian government. But I would hope that the administration would recognize that the United States and most of the world has a strong interest in a war that ends sooner rather than later. It's uncertain whether Ukraine will make territorial gains in the future. So, you know, more than anything, I think, I hope that there is frank communication between Washington and Kiev about the genuine uncertainties that we face in the sustainability of the Western coalition, even in American domestic politics here. If the U.S. economy does worse than it is, if inflation comes back, the criticism that the United States is not achieving much by sending billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine and has important domestic needs that's bound to grow louder. In other words, the war in Ukraine kind of turned into a, an endless war, I think, rather easily. What about, to sort of widen the aperture a little bit now, the larger, I mean, it's interesting that you used Cold War earlier in this discussion, mostly in the framing of how the world is responding to the war in Ukraine. But if you add China to the picture, there's this other future sort of Cold War, which is clearly brewing. Attitudes in America towards China have really changed over the last decade or so. Um, again, putting on your, your realist hat, which is your everyday hat, really, how do you see the U.S. debate on engaging with China, on competing with China, and where do you think we're going wrong? Well, I'm extremely concerned about the U.S.-China relationship and the U.S. politics surrounding it. I see the United States as having leapt from the so-called engagement strategy to containment. In other words, engagement was always a kind of regime change strategy. 
the idea was that the United States would be fine with you know, coexisting with China and engaging in a great amount of trade with China, so long as China came to look more like the United States, more like a liberal democracy and played by the rules as we see them, accepted US leadership, et cetera. Well, that hasn't happened. And so taking note of that and the increasing scale of Chinese power, the United States then beginning under the Trump administration has moved essentially to an, a containment approach saying, well, we were naive, so we blame ourselves for that, but China didn't do what it needed to do. And now we have to get tough with China and view the expansion of Chinese power and influence as a significant threat to the United States. And I think that we passed over another option, which is mutual coexistence, mm -hmm. right? Being clear-eyed that China has its own system, a system that we don't approve of, and we're going to continue to object to Chinese human rights abuses like the large-scale ones in Xinjiang. But we also are going to clearly signal to China and admit to ourselves that we can coexist with China. We don't seek to change the Chinese regime. And not all aspects of Chinese power run counter to US interests in mm -hmm. the world. And some things are also not worth antagonizing China over because when you have the world's two leading powers, there's a risk of great power war. Right, exactly. And, and we should discuss Taiwan. But before we even do that, Stephen, I mean, you mentioned the shift in strategy from coexisting to containment. But one key difference here, um, containment, obviously a Cold War term, one key difference is that China is not the Soviet Union. I mean, if you look at the global economy in the 1960s and 70s, the Soviet Union was not the force that China is today. You look at almost any country in uh, Asia or Africa, and the chances are that China and the United States are both among their top five trading partners. So containment isn't going to be that easy. No. And when you add you know, the US's current level of commitment in Europe as well to the mix, the challenge only rises. So no, I think, I mean, in some ways, it seems kind of literally impossible to imagine China being contained. But Nevertheless, the Cold War wasn't just about this particular strategy of containment. It was also about believing that, uh, as George Kennan wrote, uh, no modus vivendi is possible with mm. Moscow, that uh, Moscow had malign intentions and was driven to expand its power, not by anything the United States or other powers could do, but for its own internal reasons. And so a state of non-diplomacy had to exist between the countries. That was the Cold War, right? So I worry about that kind of framework being applied now to Beijing. And so since this is an area of the show where we're trying to reboot a problem, if you had to recommend a set of course corrections on America's China policy, what would those be? Well, you know, the first thing would be to end American overcommitment elsewhere in the world in a military sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, we should be really making good on uh, what is, frankly, a pretty bipartisan agreement that the United States doesn't have vital interests implicated in the Middle East and should draw down its uh, alliance and security partnerships there. 
Likewise, in Europe, we should be effectuating a transition to European leadership of European defense. That will allow us to, you know, that would give me confidence, frankly, on a personal level, that the United States is acting much more strategically now than it has in the past, uh, and that we can adopt uh, a similarly focused and disciplined approach toward China. Uh, and it'll also prevent us from finding new rationales, i.e. countering China for the same kinds of policies in the, in the Middle East. If we don't change our approach, it'll cause us to be overly concerned with, for example, Chinese arms sales in the Middle East and so forth that might not actually really implicate important U.S. interests. I think the question is, how do we get to detente Mm-hmm. without something like the Cuban Missile Crisis. And we've just had a Taiwan Strait crisis. We're still living through it. Perhaps this will provide an opportunity. The Biden administration might feel as though it has strengthened U.S. alliances and partnerships in the region, sent the messages that it wanted to send to Beijing, show that the United States is not in decline. And perhaps there can be a kind of working out of uh, a clarification of red lines uh, between Washington and Beijing. One absolutely central issue is that the erosion of the status quo around the Taiwan Strait has to be arrested or some kind of new arrangement has to be worked out. But I still think it would be a lot easier to go back and make much more clear that the United States continues to follow the one China policy as it has been practiced for decades and maintains genuine strategic ambiguity surrounding whether it would in fact uh, defend Taiwan. So I am very concerned about the um, evolving tensions around Taiwan. And we also have to be aware that US actions in Ukraine can be interpreted in different ways. So I think we may have sent a potentially positive, constructive message to Beijing that, you know, the United States supported Ukraine through methods short of war. These proved very effective. Obviously, uh, an invasion of another country is incredibly risky, as would any invasion of Taiwan be. But on the other hand, in Beijing, we could also send an unintentionally provocative message, which is that the United States tested Russia's red line over Ukraine. Russia reacted in a way that many in Beijing uh, are defending, unfortunately. And they could see the United States with these suggestions from the president uh, several times that the United States has a commitment to defend Taiwan, when in fact it doesn't. That again, the United States doesn't respect the vital interests of other major powers, is willing to to test their red lines. And I think we found out over Ukraine that we don't always know exactly where those red lines are drawn. So we have to be careful not to put Chinese leaders in a position where they believe that it's now or never for them to act in Taiwan. A great set of calls for caution and realism. Stephen Wertheim, thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. My thanks to Stephen Wertheim from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Wertheim is also the author of the book Tomorrow the World, The Birth of U.S. Global Supremacy. 
Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Dan Efron, and Anissa Pazeshki. If you're interested in smart geopolitical news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing to Foreign Policy. Global Reboot listeners get 15% if they visit foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and enter the code REBOOT at checkout. And that's it for season two of Global Reboot. If you've missed any episodes or you want to go back to season one, you know where to find us. We'll be back with season three before you know it. I'm Ravi Agrawal. Thanks for listening.